I'm Jo Dawson-Gerrard, and this time on Back Your People, I'm talking to Jonathan Backhouse and James Lomax about in-cab cameras, and more specifically, driver-facing cameras. We look at the things that operators need to be thinking about if they're using these, and also some case examples. If you like this podcast, please rate and review and hit follow. And if there's anything you'd like us to talk about in the future, please drop us an email at the email address in the show notes. And as ever, thanks very much for listening. We do appreciate it. So more and more fleet operators are installing video cameras in their vehicles. And camera technology of some form is now fairly standard for many of our operators that we act for. But what we've noticed is that lots of operators are going beyond the basics and fleet managers and owners are looking at installing driver-facing cameras. Now, we covered this in our webinar recently. We had such a huge amount of feedback. We thought it was worth doing a quick podcast on it. We may also do a training session, so watch out for that. So, Jonathan, why are these driver-facing cameras becoming so popular? I think because they clarify the issues generally at least very quickly and uh, just to give you an example of that i dealt with a bridge strike case earlier this year actually earlier last year on that bridge strike case the driver was essentially blaming the operator for lack of training lack of systems the operator of course did have an in-cab camera so we end up at the public inquiry and the traffic commissioner is actually challenging the driver at this point. The driver's stressing that he's a 30-year experienced professional driver. He knows what he's doing. He takes his job seriously, etc., etc. You can just imagine. Yeah. Now, the driver had been given an opportunity to look at the video and had been told about the video. However, he must have missed it in the documents he'd got. So the rest of the room, me included, are cringing slightly because we know the video is going to be shown. So the driver really was laying it on thick and also blaming everybody but himself. And in that particular case, the traffic commissioner then asked that the video be played. The video was played, and the driver on the video, probably for about three or four miles before actually the collision with the bridge, was observed, first of all, constantly on the phone. So it's hands-free, but he's obviously talking on the phone. Secondly, he's eating a pork pie, followed by, I think, an apple. And thirdly, he pours himself a cup of coffee out of a flask, all of which, at the same time, he's driving an articulated vehicle along a road. And because CCTV was also showing the road at the same time, you could see that he passed, I think it was five large signs, and I mean really large signs, warning him of the height of the bridge. He continues on at 56 miles an hour until he gets to the bridge. Suddenly, I think at the very last minute, realises and starts looking up, and then he hits the bridge and an accident that rights off the trail and causes serious damage occurs. Now, if you just heard the driver's version of events, it would have been the operator to blame for that accident on the basis that he was an agency driver who hadn't been given the same training protocols of all other drivers. But when you actually watch the CCTV footage, you could see straight away that this driver isn't paying attention at all. He has so many distractions going on. It was, in fact, embarrassing for the rest of us on behalf of the driver in that room. Crikey. So actually, in that instance, it really was helpful 
to give a full picture in the operator's favour. Yes, insofar as um, the operator could then explain how they manage their systems and protocols and also uh, identify that actually whatever they did to this driver, he wasn't being professional on that day in any way, shape or form. So whether or not they gave him a specific instruction regarding this bridge, which they didn't because he wasn't supposed to be on this road, is irrelevant. The truth of the matter is that that driver was just so distracted by so many activities that were taking place that ultimately the CCTV showed that. And that's where the CCTV works well. Okay, but in terms of looking at the other side, it's a bit of a double-edged sword, isn't it? Because we have to think about the employee. And James, what are some of the things we need to be thinking about from that perspective? I suppose there's various issues to consider when it comes to the employees. The first of which is is not necessarily about consent. It's more about making the individuals aware that there is vehicle cameras being used and in-cab cameras being used because ultimately this is a home away away from home for the drivers. They're in the cab for long hours and seemingly most of what they are doing is being recorded. And so from that perspective, it's, it's sort of a moral obligation to let them know that that's what you are doing. And it's certainly you should have signs up suggesting that in-cab cameras are being used anyway. You also have the issue around privacy from the perspective of the driver in the vehicle and maybe staying in the vehicle overnight. Mm -hmm. And so there needs to be a close control over how the in-cab cameras work. And certainly the individuals who are driving those vehicles need to be aware of when they are being recorded and when they aren't being recorded. Yes, because presumably it's not all work time, is it? For some people it's their home. Yeah, exactly. It's their home at night. And what we see a lot is, and most of the clients that I've worked for and operators that I've worked for, as soon as the ignition goes off, then the cameras won't be recording, which may answer the question over privacy for the individuals themselves. But there may be times, particularly at this time of year, we're recording in January, it might be cold. And for that reason, the drivers may have the key in the ignition and the ignition switched on more And therefore, that may come with more recording. And so it's something that may be of concern to those individuals. Do you actually not have to gain consent then, did you say? So it's not necessarily an issue of consent, as I said, it's notifying them. With the consent, it's a policy that you're adopting. And there are many reasons why you may be doing so. You may have had a spate of incidents. You may have been required to do so by your insurers and you are permitted to put those systems in your vehicle. So you don't need specific consent to implement them. But obviously, if you have consent, then it's it's better. And one of the issues that you may have in your organisation is that unions may become involved. And if unions become involved, you may get some pushback from the unions. And I think when we did the webinar, a question was asked about this particular topic or somebody was having issues with the union and said that they are holding them to the ICO code of practice effectively and won't allow them to put in place policies which go beyond that. And so you might have those sorts of issues whilst notifying the employees that the systems are coming into effect. As I say, you don't necessarily need consent. It's just more a case of notifying them and telling them in advance to have a discussion with them 
before the cameras are implemented. Okay, and if you're a unionised business, there's another slight layer of complication they need Mm -hmm. to be aware of, probably get some advice. And just looking at the code of conduct, what is acceptable compared with what isn't? I mean, I'm not expecting you to go through the whole code, but I think that's a valid question. It is. It's not. It's more around the ICO code of practice. Is more around how you should introduce systems, what should be recorded, and when it should be recorded. How the data should be accessed, and so those are going to be the areas that you're always going to have when implementing these type of equipment. It's more a case of not going above and beyond and saying we're going to record for longer. Or an example might be the camera will still record for two minutes after the ignition has been running, which may be set by the equipment provider. That may be something that the union would have an issue with because as soon as the engine turns off, within the private time of the driver. Case of making sure then, if you want the smoothest run with the union, that you are as much aligned to the ICO code of practice as you can possibly be. Absolutely. Now, Jonathan, our listeners always say that they love live examples. Have you got another one for us? Well, I have a few, actually, but I'll give you two. First of all, I'll give you one involving protection of the driver from the purposes of prosecution. So we were involved in a case a couple of years ago now where effectively a driver collided with a cyclist and the driver was pulling out at a junction and the cyclist was coming down the road which had right of way. So on the face of this, there was a long distance visible either side. There's no obvious cause for this accident and therefore it looks like carelessness on behalf of the driver. So the driver's facing either causing death by careless or causing death by dangerous driving. Either of those are going to send him to prison for up to 5 or 14 or even life imprisonment. In reality, you've got a very serious outcome in this incident on a driver who failed to observe a cyclist pulling out. Now, fortunately, there was CCTV on the vehicle, and that identifies primarily that you can see the cyclist coming. But there was also CCTV being worn by the cyclist on his chest, and it was extremely high-definition CCTV. And what was able to be worked out from observing the cyclist CCTV is you can never see the driver's face because of the A pillar of the truck. And what happens is, as the truck is approaching the junction, the A pillar and the speed of the cyclist coming down the road work in synchronicity. So they're both moving effectively, relatively, at the same speed, which means the cyclist stays, from the driver's perspective, behind the A-pillar. So the driver can never see him, Mm -hmm. and never does see him, even though he's looking. There you go, there's CCTV actually on the cyclist, but also CCTV in the cab, which demonstrates that the driver looks to the right Mm -hmm. and looks to the left and then looks to the right again before he pulls out. So you can see the driver is performing the function normally. Unfortunately, it took external CCTV to then demonstrate, actually, there may be a blind spot issue. 
And the second example I've got, and something to really think about, it's not so much an example with numerous examples of this, and this is in the coach and bus sector, is that it protects the driver. If there's CCTV on the driver, and often in coaches and buses you want to be able to hear what's being said as well, it protects the driver against abuse, and it becomes evidence that can be used to prosecute individuals who are abusing the driver. And it's remarkable how much abuse drivers take in those roles, particularly bus drivers at night with drunken passengers. Do we think that it reduces the amount of abuse because they can see there's a camera? Well, I would anticipate that it might. I think it does two things. It makes the driver feel like at least what's happening is being caught on camera, and that gives him or her more protection when they make the complaint. And secondly, hopefully, it's a disincentive because the signage up making it clear everything you do and say is being filmed and listened to. Yes, I do think it does. And we've had some very tragic accidents not accidents at all, deliberate, aggressive incidents that have been caught on camera, which have resulted in serious prosecutions of the individuals involved. Yeah, I think it's interesting, isn't it? Because drivers will naturally want to revolt against the implementation of the systems, but actually these systems are what can protect them from an incident, just like you've described there, Jonathan. And, you know, one of the incidents we've all seen, the driver who was swiping on his phone and went into a fatal incident. These in-cab cameras in there went against the driver. But if you're a driver who abides by the rules of the road, in that sort of circumstance, it can actually exonerate you. It's interesting that, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, I've done a tremendous number of fatal accident cases over the last 25 years. And I would say CCTV has helped the driver in almost all of them, bar two or three. Actually, the CCTV generally demonstrates, for example, that the cyclist just flew straight out in front of the driver or the pedestrian or the runner or whoever it was, the car. And so the driver was given little or no chance and CCTV is there to help. So it helps both the driver and the operator in that instance. James... Should this be something that employers are putting in their employment contracts? You can put it in your employment contract. And obviously, if you do so, then you will have the consent of the individual to use them because you've got a contractual basis upon which to use the equipment. You may get resistance from individuals wanting to sign a contract, particularly if they've been with you for a long time. So another way in which to do it is to update privacy policies that suggest suggest that you record this data and and that can then be used going forward because you will get the individuals to sign the privacy policy. But most importantly, whether you put it in the employment contract or a separate privacy policy is to have a vehicle camera or CCTV policy which specifically deals with in-cab cameras. Within that, you can set the parameters about how the systems will be used when the data will be accessed and that would hopefully give your existing workforce the satisfaction that they're not being watched by Big Brother all the time 
and they can go about their daily duties without concern that every single little thing that they do is being picked up and being watched by management. And so I think that is really one of the key things is making sure you have a policy which gives full clarity about these systems if you are going to use them. It's getting an interesting balance, isn't it, of making your staff appreciate how, in fact, this technology could really help them, yet they shouldn't go around feeling paranoid. There are some protections in place for both of them. James, I wondered if you could give us your key takeaway from what we've discussed today then, please. Yeah, I think the key takeaway for me is being open and honest with your employees about the implementation of the systems if you haven't already got them, if you're updating them and changing them. Again, be open and upfront about the changes, the reasons for the changes, and make sure you have written policies in place, which we can help with to make sure that the drivers and the management who are controlling them are fully aware of what the systems are to be used for and when. And over to you, Jonathan. I think, again, it's about dialogue. I think it's about explaining the benefits to the employee. And if you are unionised, explaining to the union, who are they actually protecting? So providing that the correct protections are in place for privacy in out-of-hours monitoring, so they turned off, for example, when the driver's sleeping in the car, but for actual driving activities, which is the vast majority of the time they'll be switched on, who is the union trying to protect by stopping these cameras being used? Because they're really only protecting people who are up to no good, because the people who are doing things properly and correctly will actually benefit from that evidence because it will demonstrate that they're behaving properly and correctly. So I think it's about open dialogue. It's about understanding risk, understanding where this technology is so helpful and getting them on board. Openness is often key. Well, James and Jonathan will be carrying out a training session on this. I'll put the link in our show notes, but if you keep an eye on our backacademy.com website, you'll see when that's available. James, Jonathan, thanks for your time. Thank you. Thank you.